Now, the last weekly Sabbath before atonement, we delved into the book of Esther, and I didn't really get into the book very much itself. It was primarily laying background as to the setting. Uh, you may recall that King Ahasuerus, otherwise known as Xerxes in history, uh, was preparing to go to war against the Greeks, and we tied Daniel into that a bit, showing that in that day the West meant Greece from their perspective in the Middle East, but today that might be uh, uh, expanded to mean the West as we know it, particularly of North America and the United States in particular, since we represent the culture, if you can call it that, of the West. Now, he was the king of the Medes and Persians, and the story is then centered in Iraq and Iran, uh, one of the primary areas of Ishmael today. So, what we read here, if we are to be able to bring it to the end time at all, would be a story uh, centered on what is happening, on, a, on the world scene at least, between the West and the East, or the Middle East, between, if you will, Israel and the Arabs, or Ishmael. Uh, and that is indeed what we have set today. Now, can we just take this moldy story out of the Old Testament and apply it to today? I think Second Timothy 3.16 certainly gives us that license where all Scripture uh, is pertinent for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. Now, I mentioned before that the name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther and gave some reasons whereby God might not have wanted his name attached to this. But it occurred to me a little bit more this morning that there may be an even better reason, and that is, look at the title of the book. It's called the book of Esther. It isn't a book about God. It isn't a book about anything primarily but Esther. In other words, she is the central and key focus of this book. Now, all the other books in the Bible talk about God primarily and in relationship to God. Now, this one makes her the central figure. And it is essentially about her attitudes and her approach as a forthcoming queen and as a queen in this particular kingdom. So perhaps God stepped back a little bit. Now, I had different ideas as I read through this, and perhaps most of you have read through it since then. And it's a little difficult at times to figure, well, who is the king here? Is this talking about God the Father? Perhaps it's talking about Christ? Uh, would it be talking about some human individuals? Uh, Mordecai, it might be a little bit hard to pinpoint exactly. I mean, if we're setting a stage and setting the actors, who exactly do these people represent? And that's a little hard to figure. And I think with reason. I don't think it's hard to figure who Vashti represents in the story, because we haven't read the story yet, so but you've read it, I'm sure. I think Vashti clearly represents, number one, ancient Israel, who was divorced of God and put away 
because she was doing her thing and not God's. I think she also, in a more specific sense, represents Worldwide Church of God. Because all these stories were written for our benefit, they're for us, so that we might understand in the end time what is going on. And Worldwide is essentially then pushed aside. I read just last night that they are changing their name now to some fellowship, I guess. They haven't announced it as yet, but it, it will be something very Protestantly sounding. So it's virtually gone as Vashti disappeared from the scene. So the key is Esther herself. And I think that there is no doubt in my mind that Esther represents not ancient Israel, but the early New Testament church, or let's just say the New Testament church. Uh, because in that case, then, Vashti supplanted Esther. Remember, Christ told the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, I'm taking the kingdom from you and giving it to someone you do not know. Which means that the Jews have been cut off from God ever since. And when that veil of the temple was rent in twain, they did not accept Christ, and not accepting Christ, they are simply cut off from God. They've also given up the animal sacrifices, so they have no access to God through either animal sacrifice or the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They're completely cut off. But Esther then represents the New Testament church, and I think more specifically here at the end time, she represents the one daughter whom God will choose out of all the daughters of the breakup of worldwide. So that's getting pretty specific. But I think as we go through this, you will see that that is clear. So she and her attitudes are the theme of this book. And God did not put a lot in there, and he left, I think, a lot shadowy so that we would focus on the theme in this particular book of what it's about, because it's about us. And it's about the attitudes and the approach that we should have. So there is much to be learned in this little book about, if you will, us. Now, there is precedence for this line of thinking. If you'll recall the book, or in Isaiah 14, it opens talking about the king of Babylon. I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but, it, but the story is about the king of Babylon. And as you read on down through there, it becomes a little unclear because then Satan is introduced. And it talks about Satan being the care of the covered and so on. Well, how did we get from king of Babylon physically to Satan? And sometimes it's hard to tell in Isaiah 14, is this still talking about physical king or is it talking about Satan? You go to Ezekiel 28 and it's the same story and it's even a little more pronounced there than in Isaiah 14. It opens talking about the king of Tyre. And as it progresses, suddenly it's talking clearly about Satan. So that they blend together and it's hard to tell when he stopped talking about one and started talking about the other. And maybe he hasn't. I'll explain that in a moment. Now let's take the book of Jude. You go there and it starts talking about ministers and false ministers, and then it's talking about clouds without water feasting with us. 
And, and it seems to be suddenly talking about angels to whom blackness is reserved, which we read on Sunday. And it's hard to tell. It's almost confusing when you read uh, Jude. Is this talking about men or demons? And the simple answer to that is it's talking about both. You see, Satan is always the one behind evil men. He is the one directing society. So when men act like Satan, it comes to the point you can't tell, are we talking about Satan or man here, because man is so influenced by Satan that he looks like Satan. That's the image he's taken on. The same is true of God, and I won't go to a lot of scriptures on that for sake of time. I just wanted to get this concept because I think it helps us explain why it's a little hard to identify exactly who is being talked about in the book of Esther in each case. There are times when it's talking about God, and then it kind of blends you. Is this talking about David, or is this talking about God? Is this talking about a minister of God, or is this talking about God? There are places in the Psalms and various others in the prophecies where sometimes it's hard to tell is this God or a man of God is talking about? Well, it's the same thing. If you are working toward righteousness, you begin to look and act more like God, and God works through men, always have. So, if we become, or come to have, the image of God, and we're like God, then sometimes it's hard to tell if you're talking about God or a man, because that man is acting in the uh, realm of God. He's acting for God. And he's acting like God. God even told Samuel, don't worry about it. They think they hate you, but they don't really hate you, Samuel. They hate me because you're telling them what I have to say and they don't like it, but they're naturally not going to blame God. They'll blame you. And that's exactly what they were doing. So, understand that whatever Esther does here, she is portrayed as a righteous individual who listens carefully to those who guide and instruct her, who comes up with the right attitudes and the right approach. So God is never far away in this story, and I think that the the references to the king and to Mordecai and to Haman and so on certainly in some points will sound like, well, it's talking about God the Father or Jesus Christ or Herbert Armstrong or whatever you want to plug in there or a leader of the end-time church. Uh, those analogies may fit. But I think that they are left a little vague on purpose so that we might see who Esther is. Because Esther has to have herself prepared. Now, I'm talking like we all know the story, and perhaps we do. But let's go through the story now with that background in mind. So we saw last time that uh, that the king was throwing this huge banquet, which lasted 180 days, in order to prepare for a uh, an invasion of Greece. And that then he had a big feast after that. And then in verse 9 of chapter 1, Vashti also had a feast for the women. So her attention turned from the king at this point to the women and what was going on there, and she kind of did her own thing apart from what the king was doing. 
I think I used the analogy a little bit of the bride in Song of Songs who was already tucked into bed, and she was comfortable, and her husband-to-be knocked on the door, and she didn't have time. And when the king called for Vashti, she declined to come, because by then she had already been doing pursuing her own things. Now, isn't that about where Worldwide was? We had lost our focus. Mr. Armstrong recognized we were headed off in the wrong direction. He used the term off the track, headed out into the weeds. And he said, get the people ready. Let them know what is coming. Prepare them for the trouble to come. And the ministries did not do that. And now they are basically involved in dealing with each other as the women, uh, comparing themselves among themselves in the journal and in other ways, putting in ads about how they have the only ones with the truth and so on and so forth. So they're involved in the women things, and they basically lost focus on the king. Now this has consequences, and it did with Vashti. I don't think I finished really chapter one. Let's pick it up. Uh, verse 11, he says to bring the queen, and then she didn't. Now what are we going to do? Some of the king's advisors came to him, which knew the times, verse 13. Uh, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. Uh, they were angry because she didn't come. And then it mentions the ones who were near him. I think we went over that. Verse 15, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law, because she has not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains? What is to be done to a queen who does not do the bidding of the king? Verse 16, and Nucan answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen has not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes, to all the people, but in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. What she had done would have an effect on all the people. Did not what happened in worldwide have an effect on all the people? For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported. And haven't the churches been despised? Worldwide was despised, and now the rest of the churches have been despised. And it all goes back to our relationship with God, the husband, or with Christ, or with deity. And when it shall be reported, the king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. She ignored. And the church today, for the most part, is ignoring much of the instruction of God. Going about life, still meddling and dabbling in, if not fully in, Babylon, and not doing anything about it. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes which have heard of the deed of the queen, thus there shall arise too much contempt and wrath. If she got away with it, and word went out, what would happen? Respect for the king would go downhill. 
Now, respect for God and for Jesus Christ in the world today is at pretty much an all-time low. God is about to destroy the entire society of the world. We know that from many, many prophecies. Daniel, Revelation, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you name it. They're all there. God is about to do something to it because he is being disrespected. And it says in the days of Noah, when every thought basically was selfish and evil. And that has also arisen within the church. Even in the Protestant churches, there is a very low respect for the organization. There's a very low respect for God. And the churches have basically gotten rid of the Bible. There is a large element in society today which is fighting anything about God. I was reading in U.S. News or Time, Newsweek, one of them the other day, about sex education in the schools. And a certain percentage of those who have a voice were just scared to death that the Christian standard would be used. They didn't want that to happen. Now, there's, there's not a whole lot in the world going God's way now. It is being made in the image of Satan. So, there's a great deal of contempt and wrath. Now, God is shaking the church apart to get its attention so that we might again focus on God and turn to him with our whole heart. We've said this many, many times, but everywhere we go in the Bible, this story comes up again. You can't get away from it. It's always there. Every book you go to, you might as well just brace yourself and expect it. So, they decided on a course of action. Verse 19, if it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. Now, do not we read in the book of Haggai that the former temple under Worldwide is being destroyed and will be replaced by a latter temple, and the glory of the latter will outshine the former. The story is hitting perfectly so far. Now, could Paul have read this and applied it to the New Testament church in his time? Yes, he could. And it also went into apostasy and fell apart. But we are in the last route, and it will fit here more specifically and more fully than in any other round before. And when the king's decree which he shall make shall be punished published throughout all his empire, for it is great, and we do have people worldwide now who have heard the message, been baptized, and are a part of the prospective bride of Christ. Now, we read in Revelation 2 and 3 about the seven churches that there are all kinds of problems within the church, and all are told to overcome, to change it, to do something about it. So, if we came out of worldwide... And we shared, and we did, the problems in Worldwide, then something has to be done because the crown is going to be given to someone better than she. 
In other words, there has to be improvement. Recreating worldwide, as I've said many times, is not enough. If that is the goal, we will fall short. We must do better. And we will do better. This is a very positive story in Esther. It is about a girl who came through. It is about a girl who had the right attitudes. It is about a girl who listened to wise counsel. But let's not talk too much about that yet. Let's go on. Verse 20, And when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. Now, there's no doubt from Ephesians 5 that everything about the church today is an analogy between Christ and his prospective bride. That even our individual marriages are a type of Christ and his bride. Therefore, everything we do in our marriages needs to reflect that proper relationship. And that is something we have a lot to do in terms of accomplishing. And the saying pleased the king and the princes. I mean, for someone to recognize that would please God today, wouldn't it? But we need to have the right respect and honor to our husband to be Jesus Christ. Absolutely, that would please him. So here the king sounds like it could be talking of God the Father. But there are other places it doesn't sound as much like that. But I, I think it can, these types can kind of shift in here since Esther is the key. And I don't find anything in this whole book that strays from that at all. There's no doubt in anywhere in here who Esther represents. It's, that's a very clear, a very clear one. It's like she takes center stage and everything else is peripheral to that because this is about her and her attitude and her actions. So this saying please, please the king, verse 22, he sent letters into all the king's provinces and to every province according to the writing thereof and to every people after their language that every man should bear rule in his own house and that it should be published according to the language of every people. <coughs> the husband is not better than the wife. He is not to oppress her or put her down. She is a co-heir, but he is in charge. And Vashti challenged that. She became more important in her own eyes, just as the church became more important in its own eyes, and whatever it could be doing culturally in concerts and this and that and the other thing, apart from preaching the Word of God. That should have been the central focus, but it wasn't. We talked about dolphins and platypuses on the radio for years and on television. Very little mention of God. It was just kind of a creation evolution thing that went on and on and on. How did that help people? Well, sure, we need to recognize God as a creator, but then we need to know what he said, too. And that was basically ignored. So the woman was kind of going her own way instead of responding to these scriptures about what God really wants preached. Let's go on to chapter 2. 
After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. He pondered and thought about this. Then said the king's servants administered to him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. All right, worldwide is the former temple blew it. No other way to put it, I guess. That doesn't mean that there may not be some individual saved out of that even yet. But we lost focus, we got off the track, we never got back on the track, and we're still way out in the boonies as a whole. We're struggling to get back where we should be. But the servants thought, well, you should have a queen. That one disqualified herself, so let's bring in all the fair young virgins and make a choice. Now, virgins is a term that we might say single girls today. Uh, Single and virgin should be synonyms, but unfortunately in society that is rarely true anymore. But all the qualified young virgins... Let's bring them in and find the finest. We have the church today all scattered. Women are in in prophecy known uh, as churches. That's the type. And we have many, 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 many churches. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins of the Shushan, the palace, to the house of the women, under the custody of Higi, the king's chamberlain, keeping keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. So they were to be prepared to be brought before the king. Uh, isn't that where we are today? We should be in the process of purifying ourselves spiritually in every way. We should be discerning between the clean and the unclean, between the holy and the unholy. We are in the process of determining what is correct teaching and incorrect teaching. We're in the process of changing ourselves and getting rid of the uncleanness of the world and coming to have the cleanliness of God. We're being remade, transformed, if you will, into the image of God instead of the image of Satan. So these young women were to be made pure uh, in every way, whether ceremonially or not. Uh, the, The point for us on a spiritual level If we're to be brought before the king, we need to be purified and have holy, righteous garments on. Holy, righteous character. Now, all the girls didn't get that picture, we'll see. And let the maiden which pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now, in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. You remember, Levi, Judah, and Benjamite were all classed as Judah, or Judah, as Jews, even though he was actually of the tribe of Benjamin. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away uh, before. Remember, they spent 70 years in Babylon, then they were released, and this is roughly... 60 years after the return to Jerusalem, when all this was happening. 
And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful. So she was an orphan. Now, isn't that pretty much the way the daughters of the church are today? Their father in heaven has turned his face from them, so it's like he's not paying much attention to them, and the mother is basically dead. Worldwide Church of God. So we're orphans, aren't we? When people ask us, who are you? We might just say orphans, rather than explain. We're just what's left. We're orphans. So it fits again. The maid was fair and beautiful. Are we ready to say that? Can we say we are fair and beautiful, spiritually speaking? Something we need to ask ourselves. Look ourselves in the mirror and say, spiritually, am I fair and beautiful? Because the king's going to choose one. We're going to see that in a moment. So Mordecai had adopted her. So Mordecai, when her father and her mother were dead, took her for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together to Shushan the palace to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also to the king's house to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. Mordecai worked with the king, possibly a gatekeeper, doorkeeper. He wasn't high in the government of the king at all, but he was there as a part of the service to the king. And he had the capacity to submit her or nominate her as a potential queen. He wasn't important. She wasn't important. She wasn't a princess on her own. She wasn't anything other than fair and beautiful. And we'll see he had good character. So it came to pass, verse 8, when the king's commandment and decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together. Oh, see, we've already read that. Verse 9, and the maiden pleased him. And she obtained kindness of him, that is, the keeper of the women. And he speedily gave her things for purification with such things as belonged to her. So he saw her, he liked her, and he did all he could to see that she could accomplish what the king wished. He was there to help her. He picked her out of all these. There was something about her that caught the keeper of the women's eye. And he said, I like that one. I will show her favor. I will do everything I can to see that she comes out the winner. That's kind of nice, isn't it? Wouldn't it be, be nice for us to capture someone's eye to the point they were willing to help us be, to give us the inside track, the opportunities, the breaks? Wouldn't that be nice? This is tough. So, he gave her the things for purification with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens, which were to meet to be given her out of the king's house. Seven maidens, interesting. Aren't there seven churches? Don't seven churches, women, take hold of one man, Isaiah 4? Aren't seven churches or trees planted in the wilderness, Isaiah 41? So, whichever one God chooses to be the queen or the leader, others will be added 
a remnant will be stirred of God, according to the story in Haggai. And he preferred her and her maids to the best place of the house of the women. Gave her the best room, gave her the best quarters, every opportunity. Someone, if the story be true, will be given every opportunity. The best spot, the best place to do what needs to be done. Because it's in here. So you can count on it. Wouldn't it be nice to be that one? The one that was preferred by those that were doing the preparing and the recommending. Verse 10. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. Mordecai realized the Jews... Uh, might encounter some problems along the way. Now, when we read the prophecies, we find that anyone who is a spiritual Jew at the end will encounter problems along the way, and that ultimately it will come down to us and them, those few who will obey God against the rest of the world and the rest of society and everything that is going on and the particular target of Satan the devil. So there are times it is best to not spread abroad who you are or who you might think you are. It is best to be humble and meek, not proud. And this really goes back to why I have ruled or ruled out as well advertising in the journal. I'm not against the journal necessarily. And there are some good things written there. But primarily the arguments espoused there are each organization or individual trying to prove that they are the best, have the best, above everyone else. The ads that are placed there are, listen to us, we are the leaders, we are the right ones. I think it best, and we'll see this brought out even stronger, to take the low road, or in a, in, a, in a sense the high road, but the low road of humility is what I mean. Uh, the high road often indicates not getting into the squabbling and fighting, but the low road of humility as opposed to vanity, and it's best just to quietly be what we ought to be, and then if God wants to use us for something or promote us to queenhood, that's his business. But when we stand up on our own and try to show that we are some great thing, that leads to a fall. There are many scriptures which indicate that. So, sometimes it's better just to quietly go about your business rather than trying to brag about who you are. Some will not be impressed by your bragging. If a Jew in most parts of the world stands up and brags, I'm a Jew, now he may be proud of it, but he'll find very few who agree. Mordecai was wise. Just obey God. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house, verse 11, to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Well, Mordecai was very involved with her, 
very concerned for her, and very much wanted her to succeed. So there are some elements here that would seem like Christ is looking down and seeing all the girls, all the virgins, all the single women who are candidates to be his queen. And he is noting, reading our hearts, reading our minds, trying to understand who will seek him with the whole heart. Who will have right attitudes? Who will respond to him? And who will not? Now, ultimately, the queen is going to be made up of 144,000 from past ages and this age, and as we see in other scriptures, some will come from all seven churches. So for one church to say, we have it all, we are the all, uh, I think is a wrong attitude to have. It is much better to quietly try to prepare ourselves to be a part of the bride and then see where God places us. So to claim to be that one, like everyone is doing, is vanity and ego. It is better to quietly wait and see. Be as prepared as we can. But know that Mordecai is watching. Now, when every maid's turn was, was come to go in to King Ahasuerus, after she had been twelve months, according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purifications accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with sweet odors, and with other things for the purifying of the women. So twelve months this went on before a selection was made. Are we not given a period of time to purify? God just doesn't say, repent today or die. There is a purification time and process. I think that time is drawing to a close. It doesn't have much longer to run. So a sense of urgency should be upon us. If we want to be the queen, the bride of Jesus Christ, there it is a finite number, 144,000, no more, no less. It's very clear. These are the first fruits. Then we need to be very busy preparing. I should think we should be getting almost pure. Wouldn't you? Purification period's almost over. Shouldn't we be nearing pure, being able to be called pure? I guess we'll just have to scratch gravel and work hard. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm anywhere near ready for this. Some days I think, man, I wish it would hurry. And then my next thought is, yeah, but I'm not ready. Why would I want it to hurry? I guess I'd better get in gear and hurry myself. Verse 13, then thus came every maiden to the king. Don't we all come before the judgment seat? Are we not there now? Now is our time of judgment. So each one has to be examined. Whatsoever she desired was given to her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. She knew she was going to go before the king. She was, each one was allowed to take whatever she thought might impress the king. Are not all the churches today allowed to focus where they will focus, do what they will do, and then present themselves before the king. 
does it become critical what our focus is? What are we preparing ourselves to take before the king? We know we got to go there. You need to think about it. I need to think about it. What of all that might be available to us would it behoove us to take before the king? What would give us the advantage? There was a competition here. It was like a Miss America pageant. They knew there would only be one selected out of all of them. And there were many in the House of Women going through this process. So they were given a certain amount of free moral agency to decide what they would present, along with themselves, to the king. Now, if they thought they were not quite beautiful enough, if they thought they were not this or that, then they did everything they could to cover their weaknesses. They put on ever whatever decoration or covering or scent or whatever they might dream up to show that they weren't quite this, but they wanted to be perceived this way. Okay? So each was allowed to have whatever she wanted to take. Verse 14. In the evening she went out, or she went, and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women to the custody of Ashgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came into the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. So the woman would go in, dressed up as best in her very finest and decorated the way she thought she looked the very best. And then she went into the house of the concubines, and she couldn't come out unless the king called on her by name. Sounds again like the Miss America pageant, you know. You get down to the finalists, the last ten, last five, the ones that are called out by name to be the finalists. It's pretty intense. And I'm sure there was a lot of jealousy among these women. Verse 15. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, this orphan, was come to go into the king, she required nothing but what he guy, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women appointed. I find that very interesting. She didn't take all the decorations, all the accoutrements, all the fancy things that would make her stand out from all the others in any certain way. I think this is saying she went in a natural state. She didn't put on all the makeup, all the paint. She didn't over-decorate herself. She didn't overdress. She just took the bare essentials that someone else gave her. All the other women chose all the things that they thought might enhance their chances. She only took what was given to her. I think that implies she came in a very natural state. Let's notice a parallel. I won't spend much time there, but Isaiah 3. Verse 12, as for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Now, that has been the problem, or became the problem in King Ahasuerus' realm. And 
Then it talks about going in wrong paths and toward destruction. But let's notice verse 16. Moreover, the Eternal says, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, that is, proud, full of ego, proclaiming themselves to be the best, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, flirting, winking, uh, trying to show themselves to be the fairest, walking and mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet, tap, tap, tap of high heels, which is designed in hallways to make you look. Therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion and discover their secret parts. And that day the Lord will take away the ego of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their, well, it goes into all kinds of new King James, I mean King James stuff, but decorations and, and jewelries and fancy dresses and high heels and, and all the things that a woman will do to dress up to look better than the other women. Often it is a competition between women, not necessarily to impress men, but to impress other women. And sometimes it's just to impress self, because we're self-centered. There can be a lot of reasons, but if you look at the churches today, this is essentially what they're doing. And they have all these decorations they put on, it says, and then in verse 24, it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there shall be stink, instead of a girdle, a rent. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth and burning instead of beauty. And she being vessel at the end of verse 26 shall sit upon the ground. Many will fail. Many will go forward in ego and vanity and will be cast aside. So she required nothing but what was given her. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. The natural beauty, just her, with the character shining out of her eyes and the way she was humanly without all the extra stuff she might have added, brought her favor on all that looked. So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his royal house in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now as we read this, wouldn't we want to interpolate ourselves into the story and say, that's me, I want to be there. I want to be this one. You bet. Because isn't that what the point of a novel is or a romance story? Is we take our sometimes less than exciting adventuresome lives, we read those stories, and vicariously, it's us that it's talking about. That's the whole point of those books, is to get you to make yourself the central figure. Now, we have every opportunity during these days of purification to prepare ourselves to be a favorite. Let's notice a couple of scriptures to back this up a little bit. I'll go first of all to Proverbs 31, which is, in a sense, a no-brainer. This ought to be obvious. Proverbs 31. I won't go back into all the scriptures about the daughters of Zion and the virgin daughter of Zion. Uh, those things are all through the prophecies uh, about the women and how God will choose one. 
Uh, we've been through those at other times, and I won't take the time for all that now. But let's notice quickly here Proverbs 31. I won't go into it because it's worth a whole sermon on the different qualities of this virtuous woman in the background and setting of it. I did it years ago in Church of the Great God, but uh, most of you haven't heard that, so I need to do it again at some point. But let's move on down. After talks about all the things that a virtuous woman is, to verse 28. Speaking of her, it says, Her children rise up and call her blessed. So, whatever, whichever woman turns out to have the favor of God, her children will call her blessed, and her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done virtuously. There are a lot of them that are doing a work of some kind or another, uh, but there are lacks. But you excel them all. We need to be excelling. I don't want one who's set aside or to be one. I want to be one that excels. That's our goal and our purpose. Favor is deceitful. Now, this goes back to uh, Esther here. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman that fears the eternal, she shall be praised. Fearing the eternal means you fear the consequences of not obeying, so you do everything you can to please him because he holds the key to eternal life. We want to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. I'll refer to one more. Uh, that would be uh, Isaiah 37 because it puts several... Uh, Expressions together here, just as Hebrews 12.22 does. It talks about the church at the end time being uh, Zion and Jerusalem and so on. Isaiah 37, verse 22. This is the word which the Eternal has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, this is speaking of the Assyrian, and laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at you. So he combines the virgin, the daughter of Zion, and the daughter of Jerusalem into one who will at the end time stand up and scorn and laugh at the Assyrian who comes into our land. God is going to work through one daughter of Jerusalem, one virgin, one church, to stand up against the Assyrian when he comes into our land. She will be the one he works through to do the end time work through the two witnesses and the other men and the church that are together with them. That's just the way it's going to be. And he is going to draw a faithful remnant from all the other churches and the independents and wherever they may be who are still faithful together to finish that work. But he is going to stir those who have prepared themselves, who let their character and their work show, not the vanity and ego of the decoration of physical beauty, or trying to show how beautiful they are spiritually. Our works should speak for us. We should not stand up and brag about who we are or who we think we are. And truly, we don't know until it happens, do we? We can decide it's us. Everybody likes to decide they're the chosen one. And many of these girls, I'm sure, had in their heart that they would be the chosen one. 
And don't nearly all the churches have the attitude they will be the chosen one. I think it's far safer for us to say we are overcoming Laodiceans. We hope to humble ourselves and be meek and serve God and maybe we will be delivered and maybe we'll be a part of this. We know the story. We've read the story in Haggai and Zechariah and Isaiah and all through. We've seen the story. And just like a novel, it's easy for us to place ourselves in there as the one the story is about. But that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Let's be very careful of that. It is a natural human tendency to do that. Now, it may or may not be. That is God's decision. All we can do is prepare ourselves the very best we can and have the right attitudes and then go before the king. And he will decide. Now, I think we have an advantage, brethren, because there are very few in the church today, apart from us, who actually understand what's even going on. That gives us a tremendous advantage. But on the other hand, to whom is given much, much is required. So it cuts both directions. It's nice to have the advantage. But when you're the favorite, I'm talking about in a race or in a sporting contest, you know, they they put odds there. And they have the favorites, and then they have the ones that are not as favored to win, and so on. If If you're in the favored chair or the favored lane or if you're home court or whatever analogy you might use, you better win or you'll be mud the next day in the paper, right? So if we've been given an advantage of knowledge, then God expects us to follow through. There is a very heavy responsibility that goes with knowledge. And I do believe, just from being able to go anywhere in this Bible and find the story of the end time, that we have a tremendous advantage over most of the churches who do not have a clue as to what is really going on. They're dressing themselves, they're decorating themselves with all kinds of things that are going to be seen through. Who is the genuine, real girl? It could be us. It can be us. Or if it's elsewhere, God is drawing it from everywhere, so we can still be a part. It's up to us, to a great degree. That's why Esther is the key in this book. Isn't it a little strange, based on the rest of the books of the Bible, which generally have male figures, male characters, and God himself very much central there, here's a book named after a woman. There's only one other, I guess, Ruth. There's also a great deal in that book. So this is about 
the contest, if you will, of whom will be chosen. And we have an opportunity ahead of time. How many churches will read the book of Esther and be able to understand this? Could we have 20 years ago? No way. The church was all still one. You could read this and say, well, here's a story about a queen and all these other women. Whoa. That's just a nice story about being a good woman. But now that it's scattered, and now that we understand those prophecies about the virgin daughters and a daughter being chosen, we can read Esther and understand. Most still don't understand what has happened or why. We can take what has been given us. We can't decorate ourselves. We can't add things. We can't dream up something we think we ought to show the king that would impress him. We can only take what we've been given. And that is a great deal of understanding. And be sure that we purify ourselves properly and go to God with that understanding simply, purely, humbly, meekly, naturally. You see another reason why makeup is wrong. We need to be natural, not hiding behind a mask. Verse 18, Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. So he chose her, and he made a feast for her and called it Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces, probably a tax break, and gave gifts according to the state of the king. Whatever he had and desired to give, he sent gifts and relieved them, relieved them of a tax burden. So when the queen is chosen, others will benefit. Love toward others will be shown. It will spread. The blessing that comes to the queen will go out and eventually encompass the entire earth in the millennium when she sits as queen with her husband, Jesus Christ, and brings peace, happiness, and joy to the entire world. And then when she herself will never have another tear, never weep, never cry, never suffer again, according to Revelation 21. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people. She didn't yet know the king that she was a Jew. She'd been chosen, but he didn't even know she was truly a Jew. Now, it may come down to the end before God determines who is truly a spiritual Jew and who is not. Some may repent in the tribulation at the last moment and still qualify to be there because they're willing to give their very lives. So the, the entire identity of the bride may not be known until the very last. The two witnesses will be the last two. The time streets of Jerusalem, the very last ones who are included. So she hadn't showed who she was, 
as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did, did, did the commandment of Mordecai, like as when she was brought up with him. She respected his leadership. She accepted his guidance. She accepted his advice. She wasn't rebellious. She didn't say, well, I know better than that. She had a, an amenable, humble, meek attitude, willing to be worked with, easy to be entreated. She listened. There's a big lesson there for you and me. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Big Fan and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were angry and sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. Is it Day of Atonement still? Can't talk. There were two guys who conspired against the king. There's a reason that is included. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it to Esther the queen. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. So she took the story to the king and said, Mordecai told me this. Mordecai must have been in favor with the king and was known as a good servant, I'm sure. And the thing was known to Mordecai. Oh, I already read that. Verse 23. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. So, this story of a conspiracy was written down in the record, and they had a daily record, a diary, if you will, of what happened in the kingdom. And it was written in there that these two guys were hanged because they were angry at and trying to destroy the king. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Amedatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. So he looked around, he needed uh, somebody in a high position, cabinet member, or even above that, if you will, uh, and promoted Haman. And all the king's servants that were within the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. So Haman rose up in vanity and ego, wouldn't you? Given a great seat of power, and the king had made the announcement that when Haman walks by, you all bow, you all scrape, you all get out your boot polish, Whatever, Haman's the guy. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Now, if everyone was bowing and scraping to you, and one guy that you walk by every day at the door just stood there and didn't recognize what a great person you were, wouldn't it begin to irritate you a little bit? Sure did Haman. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's commandment? Don't you know where this is headed? Haman's going to come to hate you, and you better knuckle under here. Now, Haman wasn't one of the good guys. Now, it came to pass when they spoke daily to him, and he hearkened not to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. This is almost like Queen Vashti with the king. She wouldn't listen to the king and do what he said, and Mordecai wouldn't do what Haman said. Maybe there's a little suggestion of Christ and Satan there, I don't know, but it could come down to human beings as well. Christ wasn't going to do what Satan said, witness the temptation in Matthew 4 and so on. So he wanted to see whether Mordecai's matter would stand. So we're going to 
we're going to put a bug in Haman's ear, and then we're going to stand back, way back, and see what happens here. For he had told him that he was a Jew. Mordecai had told these men he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath, and he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. One man set Haman off to the point he wanted to kill everybody that was a Jew. Now don't we find in the book of Revelation that God's people will anger the beast to the point he will want to kill every spiritual Jew on earth. The whole world will worship the beast except the few who give credence and honor and glory to God. So there will come out a command, even as in the Third Reich, where all Jews have to die. All Christians, true Christians, have to die. The plot thickens. Not just a personal grudge now, it goes to everyone. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Kur, that is the lots, or the lot, before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. So, from the first month, they began to try to select a time to come after Mordecai and the Jews. They recognized that they wanted to get rid of them, so now they're trying to find the best time to do it. And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, they figured the twelfth month, this, this is it, the lot fell right, they called it pure or poor, but it meant casting of lots. And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the providences of the kingdom. He was careful how he put this. He didn't maybe know whether Ahasuerus knew Mordecai and ultimately the queen, were Jews or not. So he didn't say Jews right away. He said a certain people. And they're all through your kingdom. And their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it is not for the king's prophet to allow them to continue. Now, this was designed carefully to say, make the king say, well, if they won't follow the laws of the king, they got to die. I mean, that was the prepared response that was expected. It's exactly what the beast is going to do at the end time. Bow down. Take the mark of the beast. <coughs> if you don't, you don't work, and you die. It's coming. This isn't an ancient history story. This is real. If it please the king, let it be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. This was also weighted to help the king make the desired decision. I'll give 10,000 talents of silver. That was a lot of money in those days. I didn't figure it out, but it's a lot. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. That represented his ability to stamp something and make it law. 
king said to Haman, The silver is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Just do whatever you want with them. And he knew what Haman's attitude was, so he figured it was destruction. Then were the king's scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month. I think that is quite interesting. Thirteenth day of the first month is the day before Passover. Will there be a time when an order is issued to kill God's people about Passover time? The Passover, I think, is something to watch very, very carefully. And it was written according to all that Haman had commanded to the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over every province and to the rulers of every people of every province according to the writing thereof and to every people after their language in the name of the king. And the letters were sent by post, horses, a pony express is what it was in those days, into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. So this decree was made on the thirteenth day of the first month, day before Passover, but it wasn't to take effect until about eleven months later. Now remember, this was a big kingdom. It stretched all the way to India. So they had to take this message to all provinces, all villages, everywhere, from Ethiopia to India. So it wasn't something that was going to be done, so they set a day for all Jews to die. And there's a period of time then that elapsed when preparations would be made to do that. Now, Satan is accusing before God's throne today, all those who would obey God, but there will be a day when he is cast down, a day decreed, a day planned by Satan, in which he will try to destroy all the faithful remnant of God's people in one battle. And he will attack the villages of Jerusalem, as we understand them from Zechariah 2, and try to destroy everything that God has built. That will be the time to flee for our very lives, because Satan will have set a date. And the beast will set a date because it will be an army of human beings sent by Satan to try to destroy the church. So he says, when you see the armies gathered about these defenseless, wallless villages, flee for your life. Verse 14, a copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published to all the people and it went out. I won't read all that. Chapter 4, when Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. Now, he had chosen not to bow to Haman. He knew what Haman was. This had repercussions, and it upset him greatly. If we obey God, brethren, it will have strong repercussions, A, in the church, and B, in the world. And what did he do? He came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate, clothed with sackcloth. So he rent his clothes, put on sackcloth. He was in mourning, because a command had been given that all Jews would die. Shouldn't we fast on the days of the fast to talk about a siege of Jerusalem? 
the pass of, Je- of Zechariah. I think this gives us more ammunition to say it's a good idea. We know a decree is coming that all spiritual Jews will be killed, if at all possible. Time for fasting and mourning. Every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. We know it's coming. Now is the time to be humble. Now is the time to cry out to God, because we know if we are not delivered by God, we will all die. Verse 4, so Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her. Then was the king exceedingly grieved for the queen, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he receives it not. He says, you know, dress up here, Mordecai. If you're weak and oiling and wearing sackcloth, they're going to know. Of course, he'd been pointed out anyway. So then called Esther for Haman, or for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains, and, uh, whom he had appointed to attend upon her and to give him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. She needed to know what's going on and why. So Hatak went forth to Mordecai into the street of the city, which was before the king's gate, and Mordecai told him of all that had happened to him and of the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. And he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it to Esther. But this isn't just a false rumor, Esther. This is true. And to declare it, I guess she didn't know about it. I might have misstated that above about, here, get out of the sackcloth. She didn't want him in sackcloth, apparently. But she didn't know what was going on yet. So, you know, get your clothes on. What's this all about, I guess, maybe have been more her attitude. And to charge her that she should go to the king to make supplication to him, to make requests before him for her people. And Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And again, Esther spoke to Hatak and gave him commandment to Mordecai. Send this message back. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king, into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. Reminds me of the wedding supper, when the guests come, and they had better be dressed right, or they'll be put back out. They better... God had better know their names. Now, Christ said, when some people come to him, he's going to say, I know you not. Who are you? He has to bid us to come, otherwise it will mean nothing. So it's dangerous to go before God with wrong works, wrong attitudes, and he say, I don't know you, into the lake of fire. Because this was a death sentence to go before the king without him beckoning unless he accepted that you had come before him and offers the golden scepter. She says, but I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. It's been 30 days since I've been there. I don't know what's going on. And maybe he's upset with me. You know, she could begin to feel that way. If you were a bride and you hadn't been called into the king's uh, chambers for 30 days, you might begin to kind of wonder what's going on here. They told the Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded them to answer Esther, Think not with yourself that you shall escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. It's dangerous for us to think that we are any special or better than anyone else in the church. 
The minute we begin to say, we're Philadelphians, the rest of you are Laodiceans, we are in deep trouble. Deep trouble. Don't think just because you might be the queen, you will receive favor, you're still a Jew, you know. For if you altogether hold yourself, your peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Queen Esther had an opportunity here. Now, God was going to save the Jews. Mordecai would understand this. One way or another, but she was in a critical position to be able to help them a great deal if she lived. But she might have to sacrifice herself. But you and your father's house shall be destroyed, and who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows? Whether God might have great purpose in our lives of some kind. Should we not be prepared to do whatever needs to be done to help? Isn't that what brotherly love is all about? Should we not have our attitudes, our approaches prepared in such a way that God can use us if he so chooses? Who knows what God might do with us even, such as we are. Then Esther bade them return to Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go into the king, which is not according to the law and if I perish, I perish. I will risk my life for my people. I will give my life in service to my people. I will be a sacrifice for my people. Are we not called upon to be living sacrifices in Romans 12, verse 1? That is our goal in life, is to be of service and help to others. I think that is the reason for our very existence here as a little group out in the desert, is to prepare ourselves to be of help to others later. If God gave us this knowledge, and he has, then we are here to prepare ourselves to sacrifice for others. We're not here to save our flea-bitten, skinny hides. That is not why we are here. We are here to sacrifice ourselves for others, and it might be that we are brought to the kingdom for a purpose, a preparation crew, if you will. I've said it before, but it fits. Maybe we can be a part of the queen, part of the bride, and maybe we can be the part of the bride that serves, gives, and helps and reaches out to others. That's found in Proverbs 31 as well. She takes care of her own household, but she reaches out to others. And at some point, maybe we don't have much to offer right now, but if we will do what we need to do and get our attitudes prepared, maybe we will have something to offer when the need becomes obvious. 
Then Esther bade them return to Mordecai this answer. Oh, I've already read that. If I perish, I perish. I'll leave my life in the hands of the king. Remember, he who thinks to save his life will lose it, and he who thinks to lose it will save it. If we're doing the right things, if we have an attitude and a mind of service rather than get, 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 maybe we will be saved. Doesn't God tell us in Zephaniah, gather yourselves before this come to pass, before the decree of financial destruction come, and it's getting closer. Look at the news. And be humble and be meek and be obedient, and maybe you will be preserved. Go to the wilderness, dwell in the field, and there you will be delivered. We've read all these before. But there are preparations we need to make to be of service to God and perhaps to be spared. Even those who are in the Jerusalem that will be attacked in Matthew 24, and I believe that's the villages of Zechariah 2, not physical Jerusalem. Even there, it says, pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath or in bad weather. Even a flight for our life should not get in the way of the Sabbath, much less traveling to the feast on the Sabbath, as some still insist on doing. How can you travel to the feast on the Sabbath when God says, pray that you don't even have to flee for your life on the Sabbath? We need to be very careful and circumspect and be sure we are purified. So Mordecai went and asked them to fast, do all those things. Am I going to finish this today? I want to. There's a lot in here, though. Chapter 5. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in, in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. And it was so, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. That was a relief. She knew when she walked in there, if he didn't lift that golden scepter, she was dead. She walked in, he hadn't seen her in 30 days, and he extended the scepter. Her heart was in her throat. Just as mine would be today, if Jesus Christ walked in that door... And I would be scared to death and probably fall on my knees and my face and hope for mercy. So imagine the feeling that she had when she walked in there. Then said the king to her, What will you, Queen Esther, and what is your request? It shall be given to you to half the kingdom. Her knees must have almost collapsed at that point. She walked in there as scared as a human being can possibly be. And he said, Hi, Queen Esther, come in. What do you want? I'll give you half the kingdom. <sighs> and Esther answered, If it seemed good to the king, let the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. She didn't ask a whole lot, did she? She didn't ask for anything for herself. She didn't say, Half the king would be nice. Thank you, sir. No. She was concerned not for herself and what she might get out of this, but for her people and what might happen to them. I tell you, that had better be the focus of our minds. What can we be? What can we do to be able to deliver to God's people what they need when they need it? 
not saving ourselves or getting for ourselves. Then the king said, cause Haman to make haste that he may do as Esther has said. Pretty simple request, easy to fulfill. The king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. <coughs> and the king said to Esther at the banquet of wine, what is your petition? And it shall be granted you. So, uh, she was setting this up. Her petition started with Haman, and it would go to something else, her people. And it should be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. So he repeated, I'll give you half the kingdom, girl. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do it tomorrow as the king has said. So she had a banquet of wine, and then she made the further request, we'll have a, an even bigger banquet tomorrow. I want you and Haman to be there. Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. He thought, man, alive, the king promoted me, and now the queen is on my side. Things could not be better in my life, Haman the Great. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. He just could not stand the sight of that man. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself. He didn't chop Mordecai's head off at the moment. He refrained from saying and doing what he felt like. And when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Big announcement, get the whole family gathered up. We got something to talk about, time to celebrate. Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had advanced him, promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Oh, Things are going great for me. I am wonderful. I am the only living apostle. I am that prophet. I am what I am. Haman said, moreover, yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king under the banquet that she had prepared but me. The king, the queen, and me. There was a movie a long time ago about the king and I. And tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. This is a very exclusive party. I'm the guest. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see that blasted Jew sitting at the king's gate every time I go in there. One fly in the ointment of Haman's life remaining. Then said Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends to him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak you to the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go you in and merrily with the king to the banquet, and the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. There's only one thing in my life that is possibly wrong. It's that Jew. And now the king surely, since I am in such great favor, will give me permission to hang my only fly in my ointment. We, as a group, as a church, had better be very, very careful thinking we stand lest we fall. It is no time for vanity. It is no time for ego. It is no time to proclaim ourselves important. It is time to be humble, 
to be meek, to be willing, to be killed if necessary for the sake of God, his purpose, his plan, and his people. Living sacrifices, and if God so desires, dead ones. Whatever it takes, we better be prepared to gamble our lives. On that night, could not the king sleep? He was restless. He hadn't learned about uh, magnesium and potassium. You can take that, and it'll relax your muscles. You can go to sleep pretty quickly at night. Take two or three of those. He apparently didn't know about that, so he couldn't sleep. Maybe God made him restless. Who knows? And he commanded to bring the book of records of the Chronicles, and that they were read before the king. So he, I'm so... Come read the diary to me. I can't sleep. Insomniac. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Vigpena and Piresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. I'm sure God was looking out for the people who are fasting and praying for his grace and favor. So he caused the king not to be able to sleep and probably put in his mind that he read this diary. Because he knew what Haman had prepared, and he'd seen the gallows sticking up 50 feet in the air, or 50 cubits high, that's 75 feet. And the king said, What honor and dignity has been done to Mordecai for this? Mordecai saved my life. What have we done for Mordecai? Now, Haman's plotting his death the next day, and it comes to the king's attention that Mordecai hasn't been honored, and he'd already saved the king's life. Incredible. Do you think God doesn't work behind the scenes to cause his will to be done? Can we walk by faith, or do we have to walk by sight? Do you and I believe to the very depth of our being? that God has our best interests in mind, physically, spiritually, and in every way. He who counts the hair on our head knows what is wrong from there down. Do you believe it? It requires faith to receive answers from God. Not just understanding, but faith. The just shall live by faith, and without faith it is impossible to please him. We wonder why we don't get answers. Maybe we're not yet truly walking by faith. It is contrary to every fiber of our being to trust someone we cannot see. But God was here. God was manipulating this behind the scenes. It looked pretty gloomy for the Jews and for Mordecai and even the queen herself. It looked pretty grim. Is not that the way it's shaping up on the world scene today? Do you not see signs that our society, with the Patriot Act and other ways, that it is going to get pretty grim for God's people. Are you ready to walk by faith? What's been done for Mordecai? Then said the king's servants that ministered to him, there's nothing done for him. Nothing in the record here. The king said, who is in the court? 
Now Haman was come into the outward sort of the king's house to speak to the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Now God has split-second accuracy. For us, it might seem the whole world is coming to an end, and yes, indeed, we are going to die. I'm sure Isaac felt that way when he saw that knife come up ready to go across his throat. God often does not answer until the last moment. We as humans are willing to trust God with our health and our lives so long as we think he might intervene. But if we, in our great wisdom, think, well, maybe God's not listening, we give up too soon. We're not willing to trust God with our lives. We must come to that point. It cannot be legislated. can't tell you to do this or do that. won't. I can only point you in the right direction and say you need to come to have that faith. I firmly believe that God will try us up to that point. He has a history of doing that. I see before me today a lot of old people, a lot of sick people, a lot of people with all kinds of problems. I believe the day is coming when those, heal, those problems will be solved and healed if we walk by faith. But it may come to the point that we are that far from death, just like Isaac, when God intervenes. It's in the book. We're reading it in the story about the end-time church. Haman was in the court to request Mordecai be hung that very day. As soon as he could get permission, run out, grab that miserable Jew at the door, and haul him to the gallows and hang him up by the neck. That's how quickly it would be done. So here comes Haman. And the king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman stands in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? I've been promoted. The queen wants to have me as a banquet with just her and the king. Man, I am on the in crowd now. He can't be talking about anybody but me. I am the leading apostle. Where have we heard those words? And from how many? Gotta be me. And Haman answered the king, for the Lord, for the man whom the king delights to honor. Oh my, let me think. Hooey, this has gotta be good. Let the royal apparel be brought which the king uses to wear. I want to wear the king's clothes, he was thinking. And the horse that the king rides upon. I want his clothes. I want his horse. And the crown royal, which is set upon his head. Just be a temporary thing, but what honor could be greater than wear the king's clothes, ride his horse, and wear his crown? Man. 
And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with all whom the king delights to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman the Great. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste, and take apparel, and the horse, as you have said, and do so, ha <laughs> oh man, do so, even so, to Mordecai the Jew, that sits at the king's gate. This is one of the best stories I have ever, ever read. Let nothing fail of all that you have spoken. Everything you've dreamed up, do it to Mordecai. Oh, man. Then took Haman. <laughs> it's been fun to watch this. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and brought him on horseback. He had to lead him through the street of the city, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights <laughs> Boy, you talk about eating worms. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate, led him through the whole city and back to the king's gate. But Haman hasted to his house, mourning and having his head covered. He was the most dejected, sad sack in town. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and his wife to him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom you have begun to fall, you shall not prevail against him, but shall surely fall before him. They could see the handwriting on the wall, his vanity aside. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. I bet he went there with a little different attitude than he'd had the day before. So, but he was still going to the banquet. So the king and Haman came to the banquet with Esther the king, queen. The king said again to the Esther of the, on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is your petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted you. And what is your request? And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king. Now she didn't say, I must. Be it, like Haman had. She said, if I find favor. She came humbly and meekly, even though he had already made this promise. Now, God has made incredible promises to us of ruling the universe, the world, and everything. But still, we must come humbly before him. Because we're not great. We're the weak and the noble. That it will be his honor to promote if he so chooses. O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. Let me live and let my people live. That's all I ask. For we, are, for we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. Read the book of Revelation again. You don't know what this is talking about. But if we have been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, are we told we'll be sold into slavery? Ezekiel 5 and other places. I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. I would go into slavery, but just let us live. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said to Esther the king, Queen, who is he and where is he that dared presume in his heart to do so? 
He had not yet realized, I guess, who she was and what she represented until this moment. Who would dare to take your life and that of your people? He hadn't put it together. And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Oops. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen, I guess. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden, and Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden. He went out to think about this, the palace of the banquet of wine. He was so upset, and Haman was falling upon the couch where Esther was. And that wasn't a really pretty sight for the king when he came back in either. Haman had jumped on the couch with her. Then said the king, will he force the queen also before me in the house? He made all the wrong moves. As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And that's what you did. This man's going to die. Cover that face up. It's going to disappear. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold, also the gallows, 75 feet high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, stands in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. This is like ends like a Western movie. You know, the good guys win at the end always. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Settled right down. Now, Satan would love to take over God's kingdom. But what's going to happen? He proclaims himself king of the universe. Try to take over God's throne. What's going to happen? There may even be those who stand up and pride in the church and think they have it made. Take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. Let us be humble. Let us be meek. Let us end this soon. Huh? Got a new tape in? We we really ought to finish it because, I mean, the, the story is here and it's finite and I want to go elsewhere at the feast so, and I don't want to wait two weeks, three weeks to get back to this. Let's finish the story. I, I, I find it very interesting, especially when it fits so well with everything that's happening with the church today. So sit on the other side for a little while and give one a rest. And uh, we'll see if we can finish this up fairly quickly. We don't lack a whole lot. Just three chapters. On that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman the Jews enemy unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. <coughs> she had said, he's, he's my adopted dad, you know. Haman was after him. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. So he promoted Mordecai to the place he was willing to give him his signet. Whoop. Take the ring off. And uh, he could stamp things just like they came from the king. Our God is going to give a leader in the end time, read Haggai, a signet. Authority from God to do what needs to be done. Power from God to do what needs to be done. Story fits. Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. 
Oh, he only lived to see that. But God is merciful sometimes. He he just he doesn't have eternal punishing. He has eternal death for those who do not qualify, who have wrong attitudes. Esther, verse 3, Esther spake yet again before the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. So this, this thing had been presented to the king and the king had said, kill all these people. Now she comes crying to the king and says, do what you can for us, help us, let us live. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther, so Esther rose and stood before the king. We need to pray that we be accounted to worthy to escape all these things. We need to be praying it, I think, even now, because the purification process is what is necessary for us to find grace and favor in God's eyes when it comes that time. I hope by then we are close enough to God that when we see this thing about to happen, we can get on our knees and pray, please have favor and grant us to be worthy to escape, and please don't let it happen on the Sabbath day or in bad weather. Satan, you can bet, will plan it on the Sabbath day. And he will also, as the prince of the power of the air, plan to give us horrible weather. That will be his plan. Will we be close enough to God that we can ask him to thwart Satan and not let his plan go in accordance with his will and be delivered in good weather on a day other than the Sabbath? That's what it boils down to. Verse 5. Now, God may have to go through some... He may have to go through some various things in order to accomplish this. Satan is a formidable foe. He has to be dealt with. Now, the king had made a decree of death to all Jews, just as it will be made for us. Now, once that decree is made, every effort will be made to cause it to happen. What can God do in the face of that decree? Verse 5, and said, If it please the king, and I have found favor in his sight, and the things seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, all humble approach, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which were in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kinfolk? We're seeing the church spiritually destroyed now, and it hurts, doesn't it? And we're going to see in the tribulation then people losing also their physical lives. And that will hurt also, because it will be some of our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, could even be us, if we don't humbly beseech the king. Then the king Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him have they hanged on the gallows, because he laid his hand on the Jews. Write you also for the Jews, as, it, as you desire, in the king's name, 
and seal it with the king's ring, which is on your finger, for the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. He couldn't remand the order to kill all the Jews, but he saw a way where the Jews might be preserved. God will not remand the permission he has given Satan to destroy all spiritual Jews, and that will be Satan's purpose. But maybe God can do something to give us a chance. See, if we're left behind, if we're not put in safety, we're left behind, what hope is there? The command will have been given. God will have already unleashed Satan to take America and Israel into captivity to kill by the sword any whom they can get. That order, that opportunity has been given to Satan. Already. Written in the scripture. So what can be done? Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan, on the three and twentieth day thereof, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded the Jews and to the different people. Verse 10, and he wrote to the king Ahasuerus' name and sealed it with the king's ring, and sent it out. 11, wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, <coughs> to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish, all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. He said, I can't remove what was written by the king to destroy all Jews on that day, but I can give the Jews permission to get themselves together to prepare themselves in these coming months so that they can defend themselves and live. They don't just have to line up at the king's order and have their heads chopped off. I will give them permission to defend themselves. Upon one day, in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar. So the king before had given Haman and his cronies free reign to kill Jews on that day. Now, to counter that, he gave permission to all Jews to kill all Hamanites on that day. Kind of neat, huh? Now, isn't God going to give permission for Satan to come and persecute the church? Only those who find special favor with God will be saved, but it'll be open field house on the rest of them. And then God is going to give the end-time church, the daughter of Zion, who is chosen to build the latter temple, power through the two witnesses and other men, apparently, according to Micah 5. And they will be able to call plagues, rain down fire and hail, or whatsoever they desire to do against the enemies of God. I've not thought of it before, but it just occurred that might save the lives of some people. If the two witnesses stir up enough trouble and enough hassle and enough headache for the beast and his minions, there may be some of God's people who have the pressure taken off them as a result. When you're busy handling plagues and blood in your water, or water turned to blood, 
and various things, you don't have as much time to chase God's people. Maybe there's a lot to this story. The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published to all the people, and the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. Now, won't Jesus Christ give us all, the time of the resurrection, opportunity, once the wedding supper is done and we spend our year and our honeymoon with Christ in heaven, he comes back, in the book of Revelation, on a horse, and with his vesture dipped in blood, and all his saints with him, to take vengeance on the earth. Vengeance is God's, but then we will be God, and we will be with him to help wreak his vengeance and be ready to set up his kingdom to save his people.